Welcome to a dialogue on accountability in the digital age. A dialogue with a global multi-stakeholder community representing national and local governments, international policymakers, civil society, NGOs, the ICT industry, as well as other relevant organizations and institutes. And I'm your host, Fritz Bussemaker, and today I'm delighted and privileged to have a conversation with Paul Timmers. Paul, welcome to the program. Thank you. Allow me to introduce Paul Timmers. He's a research associate with Oxford University, specifically the Oxford Internet Institute. Uh, he also uh, teaches at a number of other universities around Europe. He is on the board of the Digital Enlightenment Forum, which we'll definitely cover later. And he has been working for the European Commission for over 25 years, and he ended as the Director of Digital Society Trust Cybersecurity at DG Connect. Now, if you look at Paul's hashtags, it includes European Commission, cybersecurity, and digital uh, uh, sovereignty. So, Paul, again, welcome. Uh, Thank you very much. Yeah, a very impressive background. And I want to start uh, off by just uh, asking you, what are the questions, because if you Google um, what you're passionate about, what you talk about, uh, talked about recently, it's very much uh, around a statement, uh, cybersecurity is forcing uh, a rethink of strategic autonomy, and strategic autonomy of digital uh, sovereignty is one of your topics. Can you please expand on that? Yeah, let me, let me say a little bit about it. I mean, strategic autonomy and sovereignty has a lot of my interest uh, triggered by what is coming from, let's say, the digital world, you know, because things are changing there. So a bit of the context. I think that strategic autonomy is really about means that you can safeguard and uh, strengthen your sovereignty. And your sovereignty is about the things that you find important. Uh, your territory is traditionally, but nowadays, certainly also your values, your culture, uh, the things that you have as natural resources, but even digital resources, like, you know, uh, you might say that, for example, my health data or the health data of all of us in our country is something like a national digital uh, asset. So they are part of uh, what you might consider sovereignty and how do you strengthen that? You do that through strategic autonomy. And why is uh, digital playing an important role? Well, you know, always the topic of sovereignty has been on the table since many, many hundreds of years because there are these kind of threats between countries. And it's perhaps a negative setting, but that's what it is about. It's countries uh, originally that wanted to defend themselves towards other countries. Nowadays, what you see is that geopolitical tensions do play a role, and they are certainly not decreasing, they are rather increasing. Uh, and secondly, um, you see the digital changes that are so disruptive uh, and also have led to the domination of a number of players, commercial players, um, or countries behind which, uh, sorry, players, commercial players behind which are again countries, that's upsetting the system already. So there are already these two forces, the digital change and the geopolitical pressures. And then cybersecurity has come into play because that's almost like uh, lighting the fire. <laughs> okay. It is igniting uh, 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 disruption. It's creating cyber attacks. It's really unsettling countries to the core of what they are about. So that's why this topic uh, is, I think, kind of hot, <laughs> uh, especially due to cyber 
Now, on what level uh, should one seek um, uh, strategic autonomy? Is that on a national level or is that on a uh, European level? Um, so uh, who should uh, work together and who sh uh, how, how do we do that? Yeah, it's, it's kind of traditionally you would say because strategic autonomy is about your sovereignty, you are thinking of a country. But effectively, of course, countries uh, safeguard their sovereignty also by working together with others. And that's what we do multilaterally or in uh, settings like uh, the EU. So I think that uh, the changes that are coming from the digital world and also the geopolitical challenges and, and big challenges like cybersecurity, climate, uh, are so significant, it's impossible for most countries to do that on their own. They can, they have to work together with others. And then uh, I think erroneously, that is uh, more than once presented as if it is a lose-lose, a win-lose. You know, you may uh, lose some national sovereignty because you can gain something by working together in the EU. I don't think that's as, as simple as that. So let me take an example. Um, the way you actually see that it is possible to have a win-win. Uh, a thing like .eu, uh, that's something that we have created uh, in Europe. It doesn't belong to any single citizen or any single country. Nevertheless, it's a digital asset that we all own. Thanks to that, we have an identity not only in Europe that we can use, but also in the world that we can use. Uh, another example, if we talk about combating cyber threats, uh, most countries are too small to do that on their own. So they have to work together with others. And with that, actually, they defend better their national sovereignty. And they also create a presence as a collaboration of countries like the EU in their cyber security strength. And with that, they also have a voice in the world. And I think that's what it is all about, actually, uh, seeing that it is not necessarily giving up only your sovereignty because you work together with some, someone else. You try to seek the win-win in this kind of collaboration. And I think that in many, many instances nowadays, we see uh, companies, uh, citizens, uh, but countries are too small to do it on their own. No, I, I agree that. So uh, it's just, so it's still about collaboration, but uh, rethinking how we collaborate with each other. Indeed, yeah. And then there are several ways that we can collaborate. So one way of uh, collaboration is that we say, well, we only work with like-minded parties. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's kind of understandable, but uh, it may be wise to consider in a number of cases whether we shouldn't have global collaboration because the threats or the challenges that we have are actually global and we will need to have all parties on board. And we know, of course, it's difficult to do that. But even if we start off with a collaboration of like-minded parties, Mm -hmm. We may consider how do we bring this actually to a global level. Very important. And, and when you talk about like-minded like parties, uh, am I correct to assume that does it mean those parties have to be part of the sa same uh, geographic region? It could also be uh, organizations, countries on the other side of the world, but are like-minded in their thinking. Absolutely. Take uh, the example of uh, future telecommunications networks, uh, 5G, beyond yeah. 5G, 6G. Uh, these are kind of the infrastructures that we want to have that should uh, work globally. 
and they should because we want to interoperate we want to do uh, commerce and uh, contacts and communication across the world so in principle everybody has an interest in it but it gets difficult when we are talking about the security of these networks 5g security and it becomes really difficult if we think that uh, behind the security there are actually state interests there are uh, ulterior motives that we don't trust then we destroy collaboration. And if we destroy collaboration, we are not going to have that type of interoperation of networks. We, don't, we will not have a global 6G. So I think in the development of the next generation of, of networking, take beyond 5G, 6G, we absolutely need to get India with Brazil. We need to work together with other countries and preferably globally to uh, find the standards and the ways of working that allows us to create a global network. Even if within that global network, we would say there are certain parts that we want to protect, especially because this is where national sovereignty, national security is at stake. Uh, that's quite a tricky balance because, so uh, to reiterate, uh, the it's on one hand, uh, we're collaborating with like-minded uh, organizations, nations, but you realize that once you go too far, then um, you're missing the opportunity to keep the technology uh, working on a global level. Because yeah, if you go, if you push too far, that might lead that we're going to split up um, uh, the global uh, network. Yeah, and I think you're quite right on that. So we have here this kind of uh, these two parts, you might say, of uh, the equation. One is the technological yeah. perspective. And the other is the more social perspective, the social constructs that we have, uh, our laws, our governments, our values, our norms. Uh, and I think it's important that we uh, keep in mind that we can actually modify at both sides. So uh, we don't need to take the technology for a given. We might also say, can we have a technology that actually allows us to protect the core of our values and we still want to interoperate? Is, would that be possible? Would we be able to think of different technological architectures that perhaps change the governance model? And we see examples of blockchain is an example where the technology being as distributed as it is, affects the governance. And conversely, if we want to have a distributed governance, we might look at blockchain as perhaps a way forward. So there is this kind of old notion of um, uh, code is law that the code would determine what we can do at the law side, the software code would determine the, the legal possibilities that we have. I think now, nowadays we often say, but hey, uh, we should also say um, code is law, uh, law is code. To put it in both directions, we can put in law, so let's say our governance constructs, what we want to have and then uh, expect the technology to find a suitable solution for that. Now, all of that is pretty theoretical, but there are practical examples where we see this. And so I think personally that, for example, we have created problems in 5G security by doing, doing a technological construct of 5G security that didn't allow for sufficient protection of national security and still interoperate globally. So I think there's a single hold now for other technologies that are coming up like AI, uh, like, uh, as I already said, like uh, blockchain, Internet of Things, we will have a similar kind of uh, challenge there. Design it in a way that fits with the governance that we want to have.
But if you go down that route, uh, that would require a radical rethinking in, in the governance structure. Because if you're going to uh, continue with the idea, okay, code is law and law is code, the, somebody, the, the people writing that law or uh, governing that law really need to understand what that code is. Otherwise, it's going to be an absolute black box. Absolutely. So I, I wrote an article and at which the end of it, I say that I would uh, like to see that we get co-design of law and code. So uh, lawmakers, and I'm a lawmaker myself, are not naturally thinking in terms of uh, the technology and how the technology could be adapted. And I have been a software developer myself, and I know you would not be thinking about uh, governance and law at all when you are doing the coding. So it's not necessarily unwillingness, although there is a degree also of, uh, of um, an agenda that may be behind that. It's not necessarily unwillingness. It's uh, First of all, it's a matter of awareness and education. Can we do it? Absolutely, we can do it. You see that there are now developments of this sort happening. A small example, in the proposed law at European level, they wrote something in there which are called regulatory sandboxes. The regulatory sandboxes actually allow for this co-design of law and code, of AI, uh, how you would implement design, how you would use it, and the corresponding governance and law that fits with that. It's only a beginning, but it indicates that people are taking it uh, seriously. So education, we need protection in the, in the courses that uh, software developers and, uh, and legal uh, and lawyers are getting, just to mention those two uh, parties. Uh, we also need to put it uh, to the test. And actually, isn't it very strange that we don't do it? Because this is what in practice, what happens, we think that the law is there forever, but no, people are hacking the law constantly, legally or illegally. So we just have to be a bit smarter than what people already are doing, well, outside our system of lawmakers, policymakers, and software developers. I like that thing. I like that example. Thank you for sharing that, Paul. Um, to what extent is this a typical European approach? Uh, uh, the whole uh, the, the legal sandbox you just mentioned uh, as a way to uh, experiment with what's going to work or not. Uh, do you see this working on a global level? I think uh, it's of course easily said we have to make it work at a global level, but I think we do. So uh, already in the very beginning of the internet, in fact, the internet was politicized. Uh, at that time, it was already said by John Perry Barlow you know, governments, you have no place in the internet that we are designing. So that was actually saying, we are designing a technology in which your traditional governance, governments, doesn't have a place. Shows clearly the technology and the social construct interplay. Um, whether it was the right approach, you can wonder about, but the awareness was already there. I think in the internet community at global level, always the awareness has been there that there is this close interplay between technology and the governance that we do around it. If I look at something like ICANN, for example, that's where you see it, uh, IETF. So I think there is a potentially a fertile ground, in particular at global level, to look at it. It is, of course, harder when you look inside companies uh, where people are tasked in their software development department, just do this, and where they may not see the larger agenda that is behind it, or where you have a corporate lawyer who needs to defend a very particular interest and doesn't take the wider uh, responsibility. 
And that's got everything actually to do with the topic that we have on the table here about accountability. I think there has to be this increased awareness of this type of accountability uh, because you know. And if you know, you cannot say, I didn't know it. You actually know that there is this mutual influence and you can put it into the way you work, whether you're a lawyer, a corporate lawyer, or whether you're a software developer. Got that. Now, in your mind, uh, in your uh, view, uh, which parties should be at the table uh, to make this a, su a success? Yeah, um, I think it's of course easily said, it, it has to be multi-stakeholder. I mm -hmm. think that's easier said than done. Um, I think we also kind of have to be pragmatic. You need to know what you want to deliver. Uh, if you work together, also need to have a strategic plan, otherwise you continue floating in of, uh, outer space and nothing will come from that and we need to have solutions. So I'm looking for example at this moment a lot at uh, which kind of technology alliances could we have. Yeah. Well, in technology alliances you do want to have some presence of government, some presence of industry and some presence of other stakeholders who are concerned like civil society. Uh, but it's, it's, it's not always easily organized. So I think uh, we can validly make a distinction between what we do right where we need to act and the direction that we are taking. If we keep in mind that ultimately the direction should be more inclusive and in many cases also more global rather than national, we um, can make that part of our strategic planning. Uh, meaning you do the outreach while you are developing your solutions to a wider community. There's then a second part to it is I think we need to develop better methodologies for co-creation, for take regulatory sandboxing for involvement while the law is already effective. Uh, so for experimentation and for feedback for oversight and monitoring. Okay, so well, you mentioned, okay, it needs to be uh, a global level, multi-stakeholder, inclusive. Uh, I understand uh, the need for that. At the same time, how are we going to cope with uh, the speed of things in the sense that what you talked about actually is quite a tedious, time-consuming process. Whereas the way technology is developing um, is moving faster than the legal framework can keep up with. So. Is that still the route to go, or do you see other ways to um, uphold, uh, organize accountability? Yeah, I think it's very tempting to use the speed argument, but the speed argument is also a social construct, something that is imposed, imposed upon us as a norm. Mm -hmm. And we might say, perhaps we want to accept that norm. So who's determining the norm that we have to follow the speed of technology development? So th that's one thing. Secondly, of course, there is to some degree something unavoidable in it. So we will have to cope with the fact that uh, there are developments happening much faster than we actually can uh, cope with in our existing governance. So we will also have to adapt our existing governance. In particular, I think the EU to get too fast or decision-making. Thirdly, I think there's an, kind of an unexplored area. So I mentioned this co-design of law and uh, code or law and technology. Um, I'm not convinced that that is actually going to go slower because uh, you get, as we always know, you have different development methods that are iterative, that are scrum-like uh, methods that may also hold to a degree for law. But I think we need to challenge ourselves uh, in several ways in our assumptions. 
Is it really true? Do we work with governments that we, uh, shouldn't we indeed improve our governance? Should we uh, think of really new governance, let's say co cooperation, co-creation methods? So I, I think that um, the speed argument is an excellent trigger to make us uh, think about what we actually do and who we are. No, I, I think you are uh, addressing something uh, very important as indeed challenge that assumption that speed is an issue. So it's good to bring that up. And at least it helps us to think about um, ways how we can develop uh, what I would call 21st century solutions for what basically is a 21st century issue. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I think uh, is that uh, realization, uh, when we started off, uh, we know of course well, for instance, we have been in the business for a long time, digital yeah. road digital would change everything. The internet would be the big uh, um, uh, maker of great change in society and democracy and uh, economy. But that was all words. Now we actually see it happening. And I think it's happening to the extent that we realize uh, we can't ignore this anymore. Now, gradually, I must say it has taken a long time, but you see the green agenda is the agenda digital stop of the agenda and I think it's actually happening now really yeah uh, yeah personal observation is we've been talking a lot about the digital transition of society so and rationally we already knew it's happening but uh, I think through COVID we've I would say uh, our faces put in the middle of it so we now also feel we're in this digital transition because this is the way we need to run our lives, run our business. It's digitally based. Yeah, although I, I uh, so I agree with you, it has for us uh, as users almost, uh, immediately it brought the, the, the uh, digital very near and we're using it in our daily practice. I must still say that we are coping, uh, struggling really with how digital is affecting, for example, the way we do public service delivery uh, or, um, how we see the impacts of uh, digital on our um, set procedures and ways of working. So I'm, I'm quite concerned about whether take civil servants and policymakers will be able to escape from some of the ways of working that they have today that make them very fearful to take uh, risks, to make them very fearful to uh, experiment that make them think in silos and think, well, I use this piece of technology and that's it. It's no, not more, it's not, doesn't have a larger concern. They don't see the larger picture that it's not only about uh, deploying somewhere a piece of technology like AI to detect fraud. It's also the follow-up process that you then have uh, that is established procedures. So I think still in uh, more than one way, in particular, I think around policy making and public services and, uh, and government, we are see the consequences of this digital change, and um, and it will cost a lot of pain to 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 change that. Uh, change in culture uh, will will have to come with that. And who do you think uh, is best equipped uh, to give that message to help? people uh, along that uh, road to change yeah yeah honestly i you know in this you have these kind of diffusion curves and in the beginning you have the leaders and the, the, the opinion uh, thought leaders and then you get uh, the early adopters and uh, then the rest followed 
I think if it is about the culture of uh, governance in a broad sense, and in particular, I think the culture in governments, I think, unfortunately, we are still in the, leadership, uh, uh, the early leadership uh, stage. We need to have people who are willing to give the signal this we can actually do differently. And then others will become early adopters and make the change. I don't think we are already far on the, on the diffusion curve uh, how digital is changing governance and governments. Okay. So I would be looking for, perhaps unfortunately, but I would be looking for uh, leadership organizations and leaders that show the way. Okay, thank you. Uh, by the way, how do you see uh, the Institute for Accountability in a Digital Age fit in? I think uh, the, the Institute has very successfully been a launchpad to raise uh, the issues of digital accountability and in a broader sense, accountability. Um, and from that launch pad, you want that, uh, that uh, the voyage continues. Mm -hmm. And so there you see, I think that's leadership that you see there, and that continues to be necessary to make very sure what are we talking about, uh, to raise uh, awareness and to show there are ways that you can do it differently. So if, you, if the Institute, for example, can show ways that you can do the combination of law and code from an accountability perspective, you can do it differently, that would be an important signal from which others then uh, can start to adapt that and actually introduce that in their part of the organization. And a lot of that may be experimental, but that's fine. You know, that can become part of uh, the way of our administrative uh, and governance cultures. Uh, thank you for that, Paul. That's indeed uh, the way we view the Institute. It's very much being a catalyst for a global discussion. And as a catalyst, we just want to point it in the right direction. Uh, we cannot own the discussion on accountability. We can merely make certain it's on the table. Uh, a final couple of questions, Paul, from my side. Uh, are you optimistic about the future? <laughs> I'm optimistic. Uh, today, uh, we have the discussion uh, climate and uh, COP26 is going on in Glasgow and we are really worried. I think we are really worried about what is happening. I'm really worried when of our uh, unaccountability, lack of accountability or misuse has proceeded in, for example, social media and with the large platforms. I'm really worried when the increase in tensions also in the digital world between uh, China and, uh, and, and uh, the United States and also with uh, Europe. So I think there are many, many reasons that um, I'm not so optimistic. Uh, what I do believe in is that I do see people developing uh, honestly well-intended good solutions. Uh, what I think is uh, we need to make sure that we talk to each other, that we reinforce each other with these good solutions. Uh, and we are not become captive to this type of pessimism of uh, the big changes that may be overwhelming. So in that sense, I still uh, am uh, optimistic and uh, hopeful that uh, there are enough um, people around who are willing to make this change uh, also in the digital world. Uh, and they have an idea where they are heading. Uh, they need to hold each other's hands, that for sure. Great, Paul. Hey, thank you so much for sharing your insights. And indeed, we need to find and identify those people, give those people a platform. Um, hopefully, it will also lead to great discussions and debates uh, uh, how to get there. And um, so I want to thank you for uh, doing your part and helping us to uh, 
think and challenge us on a couple of uh, things we need to uh, think about. And specifically, the, the time issue uh, is one well noted. So thank you for your time, Paul. Thank you very much, uh, Fritz. Thank you. It was an honor to be interviewed.